Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome again to The Jury Is Out. We're all busy and you might have missed some of our podcasts. Here's one of our favorites. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next Wednesday. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith, along with co-host Amy Gunn of the Simon Law Firm. Hello. We are joined by a special guest today, Charla Aldous. Good morning. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for joining us and taking the time out of your schedule. You're joining us from Dallas, Texas. You are at your law firm, Aldous Walker. The folks here from Missouri might not know you as well as they know you down in Texas, but you were voted the Texas Trial Lawyer of the Year four years in a row by Best Lawyers in America. You were the Best Lawyers Lawyer of the Year for 2021. You're a member of the Inner Circle, and that's a very select group of the 100 best plaintiff trial lawyers in the United States. I assume that's where you met John Simon. It is where I met John Simon, and the Inner Circle is the thing I cherish most as far as organizations are concerned. It's been a great honor to be a part of that group. Because John got to meet you there, he reached out to you and asked you to join us on this podcast. One last thing, before COVID shut things down last year, I understood that you tried three cases all within 77 days, each of them resulting in more than a $30 million jury verdict. That was quite a, quite a streak. I was tired. (laughs) (laughs) We had tried one about four months before that trifecta began, but yeah, it was challenging. I I love it, but it was a little bit much. I'm glad now that we did it, obviously, because we had good outcomes for our clients, but it was a very diverse group of cases. The first one was a dram shop case. The second one was a products liability case against uh, Honda. And then the third was a wrongful death case against Greyhound. So I had to readjust my brain in between trials to remember which type of case I was trying. Can you tell us what kind of a team you go into a typical trial with? I have a small firm by choice. It's me and three other lawyers. My legal assistant's been with me for almost two decades. My nurse paralegal has been with me for at least a decade. My office manager, 22 years. And we all have a a specific role in the trial, and and we do. We work as a team. And it's really neat when uh, all of our work that we've done on the case pays off and we all can go to the courtroom and take our specific roles and work together. Well, with those kinds of credentials that we've just gone over, and that was just a, a small set of those, and people can visit your website and learn a lot more about you, hear videos by you, by other members of your firm, read about your results. But just even with that smattering, it's clear that you live in rarefied air in the legal profession. It's pretty cool. It seems like with what you've done now, you can't sneak up on your opponents anymore. It's not like the good old days when you were trying traffic tickets. <laughs> you did read about me. I love that. First of all, I don't think there's anything rarefied about me, but yeah, I, I love to be underestimated. And when I started off my practice in my hometown of Sherman, Texas, and I started uh, trying some cases in Dallas, I loved it because I was this girl from Sherman, you know, and I always like to work with that and keep them underestimating me until we get to trial. Now it's not quite as easy, but I do my darndest. I have a few topics I'd like to talk about to work our way into a few of your cases that you've handled. To what extent do you consider the practice of law to be a creative endeavor? 
creativity is is huge. If you stick with just the rules and the way everybody else does it, you're not going to make a mark. And as the years have gone by, I've learned more and more about creativity. I think I've always done it to some extent, but there's so many books and authors that are really talking to us about ways to be creative and consciously doing that, that it's really helped me in framing my cases. If I may make a plug for a great book on this, it's Mark Mandel's Case Framing, and he's got the Advanced Case Framing book as well, and it's literally on my desk. He's a dear friend, but his book and his way of thinking has helped me so much. And let me give you an example. Right before the pandemic, I tried a dram shop case where a, uh, a Dallas Cowboy, that's a big football team here in Dallas, he had taken his co-player friend to a bar and they both had drank quite a bit and they left the bar and within eight minutes he flipped his car and killed his best friend who was a passenger and it was a really really sad case the difficulty we had is there was a video at the bar that showed him the driver and he did not look obviously intoxicated and the standard in texas is the server cannot serve an obviously intoxicated person and then when he left the the bar there was a construction area and the video showed him negotiating that construction area with precision but about six or eight minutes later when the wreck occurred the police officers immediately thought that he was intoxicated and even said in their deposition if he had passed the sobriety test, we would not have let him leave the scene of the accident until there had been a blood alcohol check. That's how confident we were that this guy was intoxicated. Well, I was getting ready to try the case. And, you know, I was thinking about putting on the case where they were that night, you know, starting with the, the normal sequence of events. And I called my friend Mark and I said, can you help me with it? And it totally changed my approach to the case. What we started with in the case was the scene of the accident with the police officer. The police officer who saw our client and the guy that was his friend who was driving the car six minutes after they left the bar and the police officer who believed at that moment he was so obviously intoxicated, he would have arrested him rather than let him leave the scene of the accident. So we framed the case with the jury that before they hear from any of the servers at the bar or any of the witnesses, they are going to believe he had to have been obviously intoxicated at the bar. So that's just that's just one example of case framing and the way you put on your case. Mark calls them the I just can't get over it. And I don't know if you've read his book, Amy, but it is phenomenal. And he always says that to start with, you're just, I just can't get over it. It's the good and the bad and forget the minutia. So what are the top five or six, I just can't get over it. Good for you. And what are the bad things and focus your case around that. And then he says the rest of it, the rest of the superfluous issues are called echoes. That's just echoing those, I can't just get over it. And that has really helped me in framing a case to come up with that concept and think, rather than getting in the weeds, think of what are the big issues that are so obviously for me and what are the big issues that are obviously so against me. I'm assuming, based on what you just said, that this work of constructing the correct narrative or frame probably starts when you're interviewing the client even before you take the case? 
Absolutely. It starts when you get the facts of the case and, and you automatically think, what are the really I just can't get over it good facts and what are the really I just can't get over it bad facts? And we start the, the case framing throughout. I'm sorry, my dog comes to work with me. <laughs> He's my little mutt dog. We call her our four-legged restraining order up here. <laughs> so I apologize for the background noise. But no, yeah, we think about case framing throughout the depositions and everything. What is going to be your message or your story in this case? I'm seeing evidence throughout your website that if someone came in to ask you to be their lawyer and you saw them as an underdog, in other words, a case is tough or your heart goes out to them, this is a plus. You like the challenge of representing people who probably maybe even aren't going to win their case. Is, is that fair? That is so incredibly accurate. <laughs> I think sometimes to my law partner's chagrin, they have a rule around here and I can see them sneaking around sometimes trying to enforce it, that they don't let me do the first meeting with potential clients because if I feel bad for them or think they've been wrong to heck with whether it's collectible or winnable or anything, I'm going to take it. My law partner is, he's the brains of the outfit. He's just a legal genius. And uh, many times I'll go to him and say, hey, we're going to take this case. He said, well, there's a slight problem. And I said, what? He said, we don't have a cause of action. And I said, Brent, I know you will figure out one. <laughs> Inevitably, he does. We represented Nina Pham, the nurse who contracted Ebola. I don't know if you remember several years ago, at a Dallas hospital caring for the Ebola victim. And there was a huge issue with the case. And the issue was there was a comp bar against the hospital because she wasn't employed. I did not tell Brent that I had met with her and the family because I knew what he was going to say. And I signed it up and I said, okay, he <laughs> our client. And he goes, well, there's a problem. And I said, I know, and you're going to figure it out. <laughs> and he did. And we also, my firm, they laugh about it and say, they'll usually give me one or two cause cases at a time. And those are cases we know will never collect a dime, but I've just got to do it. And a lot of those involve sexual assault of women, and I just feel so strongly. I've represented a little girl that was raped by uh, three football players when she was 14, and they escaped, and I won't go into the details, criminal conviction, and I sued them. And I tried, put a lot of money in the case and tried it to a verdict and got a huge verdict against them. Can't collect it, but I can tell you they will never buy a house as long as I'm alive because I've got to lean on them, and at least a jury affirmed her story and gave her the feeling that somebody had cared. And so that's an example of the cause cases I take, cases that you're not going to make any money, but it's just the right thing to do. It seems like you used the courtroom very effectively in that case to get the message out, which seemed like, given the description of your client I saw on your website, it seemed like she really needed to have that story told. She did. You know, when Jane Doe came to me, she had been an honor student just a great kid, wonderful kid, a cheerleader, you know, gymnastics, the whole shebang. And she went to this party her first week of her freshman year. Her mother thought she was at a friend's house. Great parents. I just I love them and they'll always be close to me. And someone spiked her drink. She was raped by three different boys on the ground outside of this young man's house. And it was so bad that the following Monday, one of the rapists came to school with the same white shorts he'd worn that had her virgin blood on them to tell the school that that was her virgin blood. The child was, um, I mean, she fell off the cliff. I mean, drugs, grades fell. And I'm not going to say exactly what my belief is because I can't prove it, but there was reasons the boys were not indicted. And it was very political. This high school happened to be the football mecca of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
When I met with her, I just thought I can't live with myself if I don't represent this child. She was rough around the edges. In fact, I called her my little porcupine because she was so gruff on the exterior. But when you dug beneath the quills, she was just putty. And uh, at the end of the case, she bought me this porcelain porcupine. It was in the Dallas Morning News. I don't know if you saw the picture of it. And when she first came to see me, she didn't want people to know about the case. But as we developed the case, I could see her getting stronger and stronger as time goes on because somebody believed in her. I had never seen that child cry. And when we tried the case, and we tried it in one of the most conservative counties in Texas, and when the jury came back and found for her and awarded a substantial amount of money. She had tears streaming down her face and uh, the jury went out into the deliberation room after the verdict and the judge says, Miss Aldis, the jury would like to see you and your client in the jury room. And we walked in that room and the jury all stood up and applauded her for her courage. And I mean, I was sobbing, she was sobbing, the jury was sobbing, mm. and her parents have told me, in fact, she worked for me for the firm afterwards to kind of be a runner and be around a safe place until she felt, you know, better about moving on with her life. She's in college now. I truly believe that us representing her changed the trajectory of her life. We didn't make a dime from it. I put money in it. But, you know, I, I always say I feel like I make more than I should on some cases so I can do those cases where I take a bath. How did the conversations occur with the defendant's attorneys? I remember when I first filed it, one of them I know, and he called, he said, why did you file this case? I said, because she was raped. He said, but you're, you're never going to make a dime on this case. I said, I'm very well aware of that. But people who know me kind of know I'm kind of crazy like that. <laughs> That if I believe in something, I don't care. I'm going to do it. That's why I got a law license is to represent people like Jane Doe. When you got that verdict, I assume the, the media exposure was, was intense? By that time, she had wanted to tell her story. She and I were on the park bench outside my office and they took a picture of us. She was, by that point, she was courageous and she realized that she possibly may have helped other sexual assault victims have the strength and the courage to come forward. It was a really, really neat experience. I find it really interesting and laudable what you did going in knowing there would not be money, but you had a successful case where you got zero compensation in terms of money. But boy, did it feed my soul. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you open to taking other cases of that sort where the story needs to be told? Oh, absolutely. I, I always have one or two going at a time. Right now, we are currently representing 13 men against the Jesuit order in the Catholic diocese and Jesuit preparatory school here in Dallas for sexual abuse that occurred when they were, they're now in their early 50s. This occurred when they were in high school. And, you know, we've got huge statute of limitations problems. I think we will most likely get to a jury on the statute of limitations issue. And I think we will definitely win the case. The facts are just horrific. And we'll probably lose at the Texas Supreme Court. But you know what? We will have exposed a lot of evil in the meantime. You have another case on your website I'd like to talk about because I think it's a, another good illustration of how you framed the case. It's the Milburn versus American Honda Motor Company case involving seatbelts. If you could, please tell us about how you framed the problem with the seatbelt. Sarah Milburn was the recent college grad, and she'd gone to school in Oklahoma and come home, and her friend had a birthday. And so a, a lot of the kids met over in the Knox Henderson area, which is a kind of a bar area in Dallas. 
and they were bar hopping, basically, not aggressively drinking, but just, you know, being young adults. And in the back seat, there were three seats and the seat belts on both sides came from the side, like a typical seat belt. The middle seat belt in the middle of the back seat came from the ceiling. And the way the seat belt was designed, you pulled it from the ceiling and latched it straight down and then pulled the lap belt part across you and latched it again. Well, what Sarah did when she got in, she was in that particular seat, the middle seat, and she pulled the seat belt from the ceiling across her and latched it in, thinking she had put it on appropriately. There was a wreck. It was not a huge impact wreck, but the van did roll over. All of the other passengers escaped with bruises and scratches. Uh, Sarah was hung by the seatbelt and became a quadriplegic. The case was also against a rideshare company. And we resolved that portion of the case, but we took the case against Honda. And it was interesting, and this is, I think, what took Honda off guard. And this case is up on appeal right now, so I have to be a little bit careful about what I say. But it was not that the seatbelt as designed was defective. It was more of a human factors case that the average consumer would not know how to appropriately use the seatbelt because our muscle memory is such that you bring a seatbelt across you and you latch it and you think you're appropriately in the seatbelt. That's what Sarah did. I have no doubt if Sarah had not latched to that belt, she would be walking today like all of the other passengers in the car. But because she put the belt on incorrectly, which most people did, it rendered her a quadriplegic. What we did in the case is we had what's called a usability study. Our human factors expert, who is fabulous, Joellen Gill out of Washington, she came in and we did a usability study. And I can't remember how many people we had in it, 30, maybe 30 or 50. And we had a replica of the Honda and we had people in it like the students were in it with Sarah. The kids were in it with Sarah. And we had the people, the average people from the, the street that we called in to, to participate in the usability study. We came in and we said, we would like for you to get in the middle seat and buckle your seatbelt. This was all on video. And out of the, let's assume it's 30, I can't remember if it was 30 or 50, out of the 30 people in that usability study, 28 of them put it on exactly as Sarah had. And a lot of them were fumbling with it. Like, what, what is this? You know, what do I do with it? And so we tried it as a human factors case. The issue was there were no federal regulations that really regulated the usability or the human factors issue, because as it was designed, it was effective and, and designed appropriately. So what we really focused on is the fact that Honda had never done any usability studies to perceive if the average consumer would use the belt appropriately. And, and I think the bottom line is how many times are you going to have somebody sitting in that middle seat? And the reason that belt was designed that way is that you could have more storage space in the back. And it was called the magic space. That's what they really advertised. And so, and they had patented this, Honda had patented this actual seatbelt. It's all over the country as we speak in vehicles, which is scary to me. But how many times are you going to have somebody in the middle where a, there's a wreck, they put the seatbelt on, you know, as they thought they should, and there's a wreck and they're rendered a quadriplegic. The chances are, you know, very slim and it's insignificant until it's you. It was a case that when you get no offers, I always tell people you can't fall out of the basement. It was a very, very meaningful case. I assume there was a ferocious battle involving the allocation of fault in the case. 
between oh, the Honda. Yeah. It was brutal. And the defense, I think, made a huge, huge mistake. Sarah was not even anywhere near intoxicated. Her blood alcohol level at the uh, hospital, I can't remember what it was. It was minimal. It's shown that she'd had one and a half drinks, I think. And the defense tried to say that she was intoxicated. And that's why she put the seatbelt on wrong. And, you know, she did put the seatbelt on wrong. There's no question about that. And I can't remember. I think the jury did apportion some fault to her. It may be on my website. I see from your website, uh, they found her 5% at fault and the driver of the vehicle she was in 32% at fault, Honda 63%. Right. In Texas, all you have to get is over 50% to have joint and several liability. And what I do in cases like that, that's another framing issue is since we have to have greater than 50% to have joint and several, I don't tell the jury 55% or 75%. I give them a really specific number, like we need 73%. Just something where they know there's some reason Charles said that, that something significant about it. So in their mind, they may not give me 73, but they may give 63. But yeah, we got joint and several because it was over 50% on Honda. And that they did not think they were going to lose that case. Wow. I'm looking at your website again. I see it. The study was 48 out of 50 people. Did okay, it I thought it was 50. I, I, 30 or 50. Yeah, 48 out of 50 people. When we did that study, we were all flabbergasted. When I first went and got in one of those cars and I looked up, I didn't even know. I thought, how do you even put this seatbelt on? It was not user-friendly. It really wasn't. It would have been better if they had not even had that seatbelt in the car. Like I said, Sarah would have walked away like everyone else did. But this kid, she is doing so great. She was a partial quadriplegic, and so she had some use of her hands. And she has been in cutting-edge therapy because of the money that we got her in the case so far, the portion that, that was resolved. And she now counsels spinal cord injury patients at Baylor Rehab here in Dallas. That's her job now. And she has the most positive attitude. She's just, she's a, an amazing young woman. Were you watching the jurors' faces as that study came in, the 48 out of 50? Yeah. They were like, whoa. But I tell you, Honda put up a fight, man. They brought every expert known to God and man. They fought you tooth and toenail. I'd never seen anything like it. Charlie, when you talked about the joint and several, it made me think about state laws. And I know that Texas has had a really hard time with tort law for, I don't know, 20 years now, right? And Missouri is not too much different. Have you ever spent time in Austin in the state capitol advocating or doing anything with the legislature? Or do you feel like it's just too far gone? No, absolutely. 2003 is when the med mal caps changed. And that, that definitely changed my practice. Prior to that, my practice was almost all medical malpractice. I had to reinvent myself. But no, I fought very hard for 2003. And in fact, right now, there is a trucking bill before the legislature in Texas. And one of my clients testified last night before the committee on that. So, you know, it's an uphill battle right now. I think it will change eventually in Texas, but I absolutely fight as hard as I can, even knowing I'm probably going to lose this time, but next time it'll happen. I think it's similar to the practice that you have. I mean, you take on cases that you know are going to be really difficult to win and or collect. And that same advocacy, that same fighting spirit, which is endemic, translates to the legislature because you're looking at the laws that we have to deal with that affect your clients on a daily basis. And you can't just sit by and let them get debated and passed, right? 
I can't. I literally cannot do that. In fact, I supported two candidates. One's a, a state legislator and one's a Texas senator. They are working right now on a bill that I told them I will work hard for your campaign if you will do this for me. Like California and I believe New York, I want Texas to extend the statute of limitations for people who were sexually abused as children. And they have brought that as a bill. I am going to testify. I'm a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I told them that I myself will testify um, about it and the consequences of it. And I've got clients that will. And that's that's kind of what my passion is right now is I'm fighting for that bill to be passed. And we're fighting against the trucking bill. But yeah, even though I sometimes know it's a losing battle, I feel like if we don't fight it now, we're never going to win. It's an incremental fight. And I see in our state capitol a lot. It's an echo chamber. We have a very one-sided legislature right now. And if people like us aren't there, kind of raising a ruckus, putting a little bit of wrench in things, at least advocating, then I find no one does it. I mean, particularly to civil justice, particularly to Seventh Amendment, things like that. I mean, it's just shocking to me how few people understand what goes on in the Capitol that would affect them. And I think part of it is because they hope it never does. No one ever walks around thinking they're going to be a victim of medical malpractice or a bad trucking accident or whatever bad things that can happen. And it's easy to sort of put it out of your mind, but we see it every day. I know that you hope this never happens to your family or to any of your constituents, but it does. And what you're debating here today prevents them from full recovery. It prevents them from bringing the lawsuit or any of those things. And without us like I said, up there kind of raising a ruckus, it just skates by so easily. I'm right there with you. And it's time consuming, Amy. I mean, it takes a lot of effort and time that we really don't have. But if we don't fight it, even when we know we're going to lose this round, like I said, we won't advance the ball. And after 2003, I can't tell you the number of parents who have come to me and, for instance, have lost their child from medical malpractice. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I know that's the most precious thing in the world to you. Your case is worth 250000 And they're like, what do you mean? And mm -hmm. they probably voted for tort reform. You know, it's insignificant until it happens to you. And it's so, so unfortunate that some of the laws have been changed that really affect our ability to make change. It takes away our big stick to really effectuate change. And that's one thing that really bothers me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I realize I can only do what I can do. I can't, I can't change it. I can just fight it. And fighting is fighting is what we do. It's what you've done. I mean, just from listening to you, Charla, it's what you've done your entire life. <laughs> it's a and you thrive on it. And I just love it. I just love it. I just thank you so much. Thank you. Sometimes I think it's because that's all I know. <laughs> you survive <laughs> and fight. Yeah. Here's another case that fascinates me, uh, Nassar versus University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Oh my the gosh. doctor trying to do his job, and this is from your website, I've learned he's of Egyptian descent, he's a Muslim, and he was run out of his first job, tried to get another job, and the first employer ruined that too. Now, here's my question. It's a terrible situation, but I would be concerned as a trial lawyer that the same bias and bigotry that hurt him in the first place might be existing within a jury pool. 
And I'm wondering how your Vordire proceeded to make sure that he didn't get hurt in the courtroom with that kind of bias still and other people. Let me tell you, that case was very interesting. I brought in another lawyer to help me on the case. Brian Lawton was his name. That case actually went to the United States Supreme Court. I sat in the United States Supreme Court with my client, Nal Nassar, an Egyptian Muslim. It was pretty darn amazing. When I took the case, you know, everybody said you can never win for an Egyptian Muslim in Texas. It's not going to happen. And Dr. Nassar was one of these guys that he was the one that started the first AIDS treatment center in Dallas. He treated AIDS patients when it was extraordinarily unpopular to do so. And he was professor at UT Southwestern Medical School, not a tenured professor. He was an associate professor. And he had a, a boss who was of a different religion and discriminated against him greatly. And then he got pushed out of that position and applied for a job with our county hospital, Parkland Community Hospital, and the medical school blocked his hiring at that school. So, yeah, I sued him. I told Brian Lawton when I brought him in to help me with the case, I said, let's not take a lot of depositions. We're going to lose this case, so let's keep our cost really low. But it was, again, one of those cases that I knew I had to take because I believed him totally and completely. He was one of the most compassionate men, and he'd given his life to take care of those patients who no one else wanted to treat. It was a federal court case, so the judge only gave us like 15 or 20 minutes of Vordire. But this is a great example of how you use your own personal experiences. There was a Pentecostal preacher on the panel. And Brian said, we're representing an Egyptian Muslim who takes care of AIDS patients who are usually gay. We certainly can't leave this guy on the panel. I said, are you kidding me, Brian? I was raised by a Pentecostal preacher. Brother Smith and I are going to have some talks. And Brian thought I'd lost my mind. When I got to this gentleman, I said, Brother Smith, I'd like to ask you something. Well, he just started posing like a peacock. He was so proud that I gave him due deference. You know, it's disgusting to me, but it's, I used it. He ended up being our jury, and Brian was so anxious about it. And I said, I promise you, I know, I know how to talk to Brother Smith. And so <laughs> at one point during the, the, the testimony, something really powerful was said, and Brother Smith was on the jury. He goes, Amen. Uh, <laughs> I said, Praise the Lord and pass the offering plate. <laughs> hilarious. And, and in that case, the, the, the woman that we call Shirley Levine was her name. She was the one that discriminated against Dr. Nassar. And we had not deposed her, so I really didn't know what she was going to say. She gets up there in her St. John's suit, ramrod straight, sits down, grabs the microphone. And we had a, three African-Americans on the jury and Brother Smith. He was Caucasian. And uh, I said, Dr. Levine, you think Egyptian Muslims are lazy, don't you? That's the first question I asked. She goes, I don't understand that question. I said, well, do you know what lazy means? Yes. I said, do you know what an Egyptian Muslim looks like? There's one right over here. They have brown skin. And she said, well, I think all ethnicities have a form of laziness. Oh, my God. I'm like, well, isn't that something else? So the defense lawyer gets her on their direct examination, and they said, where did you go last year for your vacation? To Morocco. Who did you take with you? My children. And where did you all visit? The mosques. So this is something I did that I knew I might land in jail for, and I certainly didn't think it would go before the United States Supreme Court. And I did not tell my legal assistant I was going to do it because she would have been really worried. But in closing, I said, you know, Dr. Levine, she's not biased. Dr. Levine's not prejudiced against Muslims. She took her beloved children to Morocco to see the Muslims in the mosques. I bet she's also taken them to the zoo to see the monkeys. It was 
silent in that courtroom. And those, especially black women on the jury, were like, yes, 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 yes. Because that's that's how I felt about it. It was so offensive to me that she was not prejudiced because she took her children to Morocco to see the Muslims in the mosques. Anyway, we won that case. We won it. I, I can't remember how much, but it's several million dollars. It was really neat. It was a, a great victory for Niall. And I always tell my clients, good, bad, or indifferent, I want something to remember you by. My office is full of mementos from clients. And so Dr. Nassar gave me the trophy of a teaching award he had gotten at UT Southwestern. <laughs> it's, it's really neat. One last case I'd like to ask you about. You have so many. I would invite listeners to go visit your website because you, I've just picked a few of them. There's 20 of them on your site. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But the last one I would like to ask you about is Martin versus Medical City. The medical team gave the plaintiff 40 times the recommended dose of propofol, and it caused horrible injuries. The interesting thing here is that this trial ended up with a new warning on, on the oh, drug. Yeah. Can you tell this, us this about that? This was years ago. This was probably, gosh, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, Rachel Martin. I've got her original birth print, handprints in my office uh, in a frame. Her parents gave them to me. Rachel was a special needs young woman. She was the youngest of three girls in the family, and her parents, Wayne and Brenda, had devoted their life to trying to mainstream Rachel as much as they could. Uh, she was pretty severely handicapped mentally. She had a, a condition called subglottic stenosis, a narrowing in her trachea, and they took her to Medical City Hospital for what should have been not a minor surgery, but not a life-threatening type surgery. And they gave her propofol. Everybody's heard of that from the Michael Jackson case. The generic name is Diprovan. And they gave it to her after the surgery for conscious sedation. Well, propofol should not have been given to a pediatric patient, especially for conscious sedation. And it was mind boggling how much propofol they gave her. I forgot, Eric, that it was 40 times the recommended dose. I remember it was a lot. And to make a long story short, I think it was about, this is 20 years ago, but it's about three days Rachel was in the intensive care unit. And she had a catheter and her parents, who are wonderful people, I'm, I still talk to them, you know, I get cards from them every Christmas, told the nurses that her catheter bag was, the, the urine was turning, it started with a coffee colored and then it said it's it's dark brown, it's black. And they said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Well, eventually Rachel died of organ failure. And what happened, she had a condition called rhabdomyolysis which is a wasting away of the cellular content in your muscle. And she was secreting that, you know, through her kidneys. And she died because of it, a multi-system organ failure. So we sued AstraZeneca, the manufacturer, and then the pediatric intensivist group that had prescribed the propofol and the nurses. And uh, AstraZeneca, when we went up, I can't remember, they were up north and we had to wear, you know, security badges. And they put us in this room with boxes, you know, up to the ceiling. And I only had like four people on my team and we spent weeks up there going through all the boxes. Anyway, we settled with AstraZeneca before the trial, but as a part of the settlement, I insisted that they list rhabdomyolysis as an adverse reaction to the drug. And they did. It's now in their package insert because what the nurses and everybody was saying is we did not know that this drug could cause rhabdomyolysis. We didn't know it. So now, you know, we're hoping that as a result of what happened to Rachel, if this ever happens to another patient who's been given propofol in excessive amounts, they'll be able to find it. Anyway, we settled with the pediatric intensivist and then we tried the hospital. They were very, very arrogant about it. And we got a, gosh, I think it was a 268 million. 0.16. I can't remember. It was an odd number 
verdict. Uh, the odd, it was like 0.16. And when they read the verdict, first of all, we were just flabbergasted at the amount. That jury was ticked off. Mm-hmm. And we asked the jury afterwards, uh, they gave $68.16 million for Rachel's conscious pain and suffering. Of course, this was pre-tort reform. And we asked them, why did you give that? And they said, because Rachel Martin died at 8.16 in the morning. And we wanted the hospital to know when they wrote that check that they needed to remember the time she died. As a result, we settled post-verdict. But what we insisted on with the hospital is that the CEO of the hospital go to my parents' house and personally apologize for what had happened to their daughter and that the hospital institute a seminar every year. I think it was for the next either five or 10 years on adverse reactions to drugs and how to recognize them. And that my clients, the dad was an engineer, be able to approve the course before it was done. Hmm. And they did that. And that that meant as much to my clients as the monetary compensation is that Rachel did not die in vain, that the hospital had to make some changes, that the parents could supervise those changes to make sure they were done over the years, and that AstraZeneca had to change their package insert. So gosh, that that is really traveling down memory lane on that one, Eric. I liked it because it's such a good change of pace from just cleaning up messes and getting <laughs> compensation. You know, the fact that you can look forward, you can do this in the courtroom, and it's functionally the same thing as changing the law in the legislature. I tried a case, a sexual assault case uh, for a young woman against the Episcopal School of Dallas, which is the most hoity-toity school in Dallas. She had been sexually abused by her teacher. She was 14. This child had gone through the school since kindergarten, and the school let the teacher resign and brought the father in while the mother and daughter were visiting a college and said, your daughter's gonna have to leave the school. You can either withdraw or we're gonna expel her and there is no door number three. I kid you not. And he had to withdraw his child. So she, her freshman year, got kicked out of her school because a teacher had sexually abused her. The case took a life of its own. It was a blog on the Dallas Morning News. I I did not know it was gonna be that way. I just knew I was gonna you know, fight for this child. There was an email that they turned over literally two weeks from trial where the headmaster of the school had said, I don't want the girl lurking our hallways with her sad story. I kid you not. Those words were written by someone who is in charge of children's safety. The school had tried to settle with me and I said, I will not settle if the three people, one was the founder of the school, one was the vice president and one was the headmistress. I said, I will not settle unless those three people are fired from that school because people who could treat a child like that do not need to be working with children. They wouldn't do it. And so we tried it and we got a, I can't remember, nine, 12, 15 something million dollar case. As a result of it, they came to me and said, we want to settle now. I said, the same conditions still apply. And as a result of that case, those three people were fired. One was the founder of the school. That place is a safer place now because this young woman had the strength to to stand up. This is a great story. She graduated from law school at William & Mary. I was at her law school graduation and she got married by her grandfather in Florida. And I read the scripture at her wedding. And I can't tell you what that felt like seeing her walk down the aisle, you know, and knowing she was suicidal when she came to me. Now, this is the greatest part. She is working in the women's rights division of the ACLU in New York City. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that is wonderful. I'm proud of her. So I have one more question that probably is the elephant in the room regarding every case that any of us try. And that's something we've touched on repeatedly about credibility, your credibility in front of the jury and the judge. When we want to be friends with somebody or to 
have a relationship with a family member to establish credibility can be something that can take, you know, weeks or months, maybe years. Your challenge in the courtroom is you just show up and there's 12 people and you need to establish that you're a believable person and you don't get that time frame. You don't have that luxury. You have a few hours or a few days, maybe a couple weeks in order to do what normally takes a lot longer. But how do you go about accelerating that timeline? I think the most important thing, first of all, is to be authentic. And I really try to start establishing credibility by personalizing myself during board ire. And one thing that I've always done, even when I was practicing in Sherman, because you get those jury cards and it has you know specific information about people that's quite personal. And sometimes I'll ask them, how many of you felt you were having to divulge too much of your personal information when you filled out this card or the questionnaire? And I say, yes. I say, well, I think it's only fair that you know some things about me. And I hold up the card and I say, my name's Charla and go through it. You know, I went to Grayson County Junior College, throw it in there so they know that I'm not some uppity snot or anything. I've got four children. I'm divorced and I'm not crying about it anymore. Just things that you can say and you can look at the the panel and they kind of because some of them have never been on a board hour panel before. And it gives them an ease to understand, look, I'm just a person like you and I'm here to talk to you. Throughout the board hour, I try to put in personal things that they would understand. And so that's where I think the credibility issue starts is in board hour. And if you haven't been able to participate in the board hour and you start with the first witness, I think it's just by easing into it, not as a woman, not being too aggressive as Amy and I have discussed, but kind of earning the right to be aggressive. Have you ever gotten an objection when you pepper in those personal facts about yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I remember I did that the first trial I ever had because I didn't know any better. And I did the same thing. I was like, my name's Amy. I grew up in Kentucky. Blah, 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 blah. I'm married. And the the defense attorney was like, what is going on here? Objection. And it was sustained. And I swear, I remember that now. I remember that every time I'd pick a jury and it really gives me pause from giving too much personal information. So you've just inspired me. You're like, nah, just say it. Heck with it. Let them object and then <laughs> tell the panel, I was going to try to tell you something about me, but obviously they don't want to hear about it. So <laughs> You're so right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, that's one thing I, I will say, Eric, and I mean, that I wanted to say is, is one of the, the best things I think you can do in a trial is catch people off guard and think outside the box. Don't just go with the norm first plaintiff's case I ever tried, which is what made me think I've got to do this for a living, is out in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was the first methyl tertiary butyl ether case. And Conoco had polluted my client's underground well water. They lived in a trailer park and it's well water in North Carolina. And uh, I just been brought in to try the case two weeks before it started. And we showed up and it's this majestic federal courtroom in North Carolina. And there were more seersucker suits on the other side than you've ever seen. I guarantee you, every one of them were Ivy Leaguers. There were about 15 lawyers and about 30 support people and our tiny little team over here. And the judge said, call your first witness. I said, Your Honor, I call whomever on behalf of Conoco is going to tell this jury if they take responsibility for polluting my client's well water. Well, I didn't tell my team I was going to do that. And they're like, oh, crap. And I had a backup plan to tell somebody. <laughs> well, all the seersucker suits are converging and talking. I said, well, Your Honor, could we get a name? I said, Judge, I'll take anybody on that side of the courtroom. This case has been going for two and a half years. Surely somebody over there knows if they're going to take responsibility for polluting my client's well water. And it totally threw them off. I bet. And for the rest of the trial, they never knew exactly what I was going to do, but they knew it was going to be quite crazy. 
And I think that's very effective, you know, just to throw people off and don't do the norm. And so what? Okay, what's the worst that can happen? The judge says, you can't do that. Okay. You know, I always say, bring your toothbrush. If you don't get threatened with contempt of court at least one time, <laughs> job. <laughs> in a defamation case, we got, actually got a $366 million verdict on the $10,000 damages case. I represented the biggest jerk. He's an interventional cardiologist, but I really kind of liked him. And the defense was cross-examining the heck out of him. It was in federal court, and he was just rambling on and on and on. I stood up, Your Honor. I said, may I object to my client? <laughs> the judge said, well, I guess so. I said, that answer is non-responsive. And the judge says, uh, I think I'm going to sustain that. I said, Dr. Taylor, that means you have to hush. So the rest of the examination, every time they would ask him a question, the jury would look at me and say, oh, is he about to get in trouble again? <laughs> is mama getting ready to scold him? <laughs> Be yourself. You know, all the judge can do is call you down. And juries like the entertainment, I think. I agree I, with that. I'll never let it get boring. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us. This has been an awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hate to do talks. I'll tell you all that. I hate it. But I enjoyed this. This is This is awesome. Good. Yeah. No pain here either. This has been awesome. So this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, along with guest host Amy Gunn and our guest Charlotte Aldis. We'll be back with part two at a future episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next week. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. Stop learning.